0: Father, you are almighty. And we come to you once again mindful of just your power and your ability to save. And so we pray, God, that that incredible strength, that incredible might would be something that we feel and experience deep within our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Especially now, Father, as we turn to your scripture, to your holy word, and we enter into a time of thoughtful reflection, God, that your spirit would awaken us to what you have done through Jesus, and that we would once again celebrate saving work of your hands. We love you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. Thank you again, worship team, for leading us this morning. Um, so I, I think every child at some point or another kind of goes through this inevitable season of life, this, I don't know if you want to call it a rite of passage or just a normal part of childhood development, but they, they eventually go into that season of life where they're going to ask the question, Why? to everything, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, parents have been there before where it doesn't matter what the topic, the situation when you're younger, uh, eventually you just respond to everything, why, why? Woo is definitely in this stage uh, right now. He asks why to just about everything and we tend to, to kind of laugh and chuckle every once in a while because y- you really just run out of answers, you know I mean? It won't be uncommon for me to say in the morning, hey, Woo, it's time to go to school, why? Well, because it's eight o'clock, why? I don't know how to tell you why it's eight o'clock, but we gotta go to school. Like this is how we keep time and we need to go do this. And so uh, he's, he's in that season of life for sure. I think we all can recognize uh, that that's something most children go through. But I would also be willing to submit that I think a lot of us can also acknowledge that that's not something that is just confined to childhood, right, that, that we all tend to maintain those sorts of childlike questions, especially as we get into adulthood and we start to reflect about things related to God. Right? And that we also come to God with a lot of questions related to why. Right? And, and so in adulthood, those questions sound a little bit more like, okay, well, God, why would you allow this to happen? Uh, God, why won't you answer me? Uh, why do I have to feel this way? Right? I mean, there, there are a lot of questions, heavy questions, that we are, are very frequently, uh, commonly, I guess, bringing to the Lord. And, and those questions can be really challenging right? Difficult questions along the way. And I'm curious this morning, I wonder what questions you have. Like when you think about your questions that you really want to bring to God and, and the ones that you wrestle with, what are they? And, and I wonder how you've acknowledged them. Because I think a lot of times we have a tendency to kind of vary between one extreme to the next, right? But sometimes these questions come into our mind and, and we really don't try to pay much attention to them. Right? We, we, we almost just let them be these fleeting thoughts that kind of pass through our mind, and then we suppress them, we put them away, and we don't even really want to wrestle with them. Uh, but other times, some of these difficult questions uh, come into our minds, and it's almost like they take up residence within us, and we can't escape them. And, and either extreme can be pretty unhealthy or problematic. Right When we suppress it and we never really make the effort to ask those questions and to seek some level of understanding, that can be problematic. And at the same time, when we become consumed by these difficult questions that we can't see anything else, that can also become problematic. And so how do we deal with these questions in a healthy way? That's really kind of the spirit of this new series that's going to take us through the month of October, which we're referring to as Facing Doubt, right? And what does it mean to hold fast to the anchor? And, and so really, when you think about the concept of doubt, these questions that, that, that bring certain doubts to the surface, um, this to me is a really important subject, and one that I've been really eager for us to address for quite some time. I, I planned the sermons out at least a year in advance, and I, I knew that this was something we needed to cover, and, and when I planned it out, I was like, man, I really don't even want to wait that long, but I uh, tried to stay patient with it, but the reason I was really intrigued and interested in this is because I have noticed in my own conversations with others, this is an increasingly common discussion. More and more people uh, that I know and know personally um, will come to me and visit with me about certain doubts. Uh, And and this is, I think, uh, a trend that seems to be bearing out in a lot of statistical data as well. Pew Research has recently released a study showing that there's been a 15% increase amongst Christians and believers who have said they have seen an increase in their questions of doubt over the last five years. Uh, Barna Research has released a study that has said uh, that you see around 60%, more than two-thirds of self-proclaimed Christians that say they wrestle with and struggle with doubt. Uh, Millennials, I think, are more than twice as likely than any other generation to really wrestle with doubt. And and I think there are a lot of reasons uh, for this. I think the pandemic has definitely been catalytic And a lot of this, because of just the sheer uh, complexity of the situation, the isolation that a lot of people went through over the last couple of years, but you also have to acknowledge we live in a certain time that it has just information overload, right? We are bombarded with information, and the ability to discern truth has become increasingly difficult, and when truth is hard to figure out, then you begin to really wrestle with well, what is true, what should I believe in these questions of doubt? naturally come to the surface. And so as a result, I've seen more and more people wrestle with certain questions related to doubt. And, and so I felt like it was an, an appropriate series for us to consider, and, and one that I can also draw from uh, in my own life, not just because of recent conversations. Uh, when I think back to some of the early questions that I wrestled with, I, I remember probably one of the more shaping ones that I had was probably when I was about 18 years old. Uh, I really got serious about my faith when I was 16, um, and I grew up in a Christian home, so I was around it, but it wasn't really that it, until I was 16 that I really tried to live it out. And as I got to my senior year in high school, here was the question that I couldn't escape. The, the question that really kind of took residence in my mind was, am I only a Christian because I was born in Abilene, Texas? You know what I mean by that? Like, like As I've grown into my 18 years of living and I've encountered life and all these different challenges, people, context, culture have shown me Christianity. But that's only because this is where I live. This is the family that I was born into, the place that I was born into, the city. What, what if I had been born in Shanghai, China? Or, or uh, Indonesia or India, right? And, and the answer there was uh, Hinduism or Islam. Wouldn't, wouldn't I be a Muslim if I was just born somewhere else? And I couldn't shake that question. I needed to know, why am I actually a believer? And it launched me into at least a year, if not longer, in-depth study of world religions, uh, different belief systems. And I really needed to answer for myself, why do I believe this? Is it simply because of where I was born or because I actually believe it? Right? And I think that's an important part of understanding doubt is is recognizing that when you go through these questions, it can be difficult to embrace those questions. It can be scary at times or confusing at times, but in reality, it can also be very constructive, right? It can be actually very beneficial. And so really, before we even get to today's question, I want to talk just in general about the concept of doubt and having the right framework when those questions come into our minds, and how can we channel them in a way that hopefully actually strengthens us. And, and so to, to kind of cover this aspect to it and to set the tone for the nature of this discussion related to doubt, uh, one book that was given to me uh, a couple of weeks ago is called When Faith Fails, which is written by Dominique Dunn. And uh, it really, I haven't finished it all yet, but it's a really decent book that I've started at and uh, would encourage you to consider it as well if you're uh, in a similar situation where you want to understand how do you navigate the concept of doubt. And uh, he offers some really good perspective that helps us understand that doubt is not something to be fearful of. Let me read you an excerpt from some of his opening chapters. He says, Doubt presses you to reevaluate the story of your life. What are your values? What do you really believe? What direction do you wanna go? And like water between two banks, doubt creates space for diverging outcomes. I love that imagery. You can swim toward God or away. You can reach toward belief or unbelief, the choice is yours. Doubt is essentially neutral. It's what you do with it that counts. So I love that, right? Part of what he's saying is that there is an inevitable part of the human experience to ask questions, right? You're going to find yourself in this river of doubt, and it's up to you with what you do with it. You can either swim towards God or away. You can either reach towards belief or towards unbelief. Doubt itself is neutral. It's how do you respond to it? And and so part of what uh, the author wants us to see is that doubt is not like this inherently sinful thing that we have to be afraid of or embarrassed by, but you can actually steward it well that strengthens your relationship with God and leads you into a place of worship. If you think about asking questions, those are all really parts of just the natural part of curiosity, right? And curiosity is a good thing. Uh, the, The author continues to explain this a little bit further. He says, curiosity is a gift from God. Curiosity, along with mystery, lies at the heart of creation. Curiosity pounds at the door of imagination. It fuels creativity, spiritual renewal, depth in relationships, scientific innovations, the pursuit of truth. Curiosity gives birth to worship. This is what God invites us to step into. Celebrate mystery. Dance with curiosity. Resist the status quo. You're a pilgrim. Explore. Probe. Wrestle. Pursue. Inquire. Ask the questions no one is willing to ask. And just because you have questions doesn't mean you're losing your faith. I love that. So again, church, what questions are you asking? Like how are you wrestling with these questions related to God or or doubt? Like what are your questions? Uh, We we wanna be able to to navigate this series with a particular focus. Okay, here's, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not gonna come up here each and every week for the next month and just try to give you answers to questions, right? Here's what you need to think. (laughs) What I learned in my own journey uh, on several occasions and the one I just referenced is that the real value is not learning what to think but how to think, right? How do I navigate difficult questions in a healthy and constructive way? And so as we walk through this series, there are certain resources that we wanna be able to provide uh, to help you navigate these questions: How do I think through these things well? Uh, you just heard me reference that first book, When Faith Fails. Another one uh, that I'm going to recommend to you is Making Sense of God by Timothy Keller. I uh, came across a podcast that was also recommended to me from a church member that I've been listening to over the last month, and I would highly encourage you, if you're interested in this sort of thing, to listen to this podcast over the next month or so. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor up in New York, and he, he has a Q&A kind of session that helps him navigate this podcast that's all drawn from this book that he wrote, Making Sense of God. And we actually bought several additional books, like seven extra books. And what I would tell you is that if you are really wrestling with some of these questions or you know someone that's really wrestling with these questions, please contact me. I would love to gift you this book. Um, You can actually go onto the podcast and find ways to also purchase it or get a free copy for somebody that you know. But we wanted to help and assist in that. So send me an email. And I would love to try to, to support you with that. But this is another great resource for you to consider. Another thing that we're gonna to try to do as we move forward into the future of our church is create more space for us to bring our questions, whatever they are, and to have healthy and meaningful dialogue to figure out how do I think through these things. And so, I'm still fine tuning what I think that might look like for this next year, but that's something that we also want to try to lean into. And so, what are some of the questions? Uh, that we're gonna try to wrestle with at least through the course of this series. Let me work in reverse order, okay? Here's how we'll end the series and then I'll get to what we're doing today. Uh, Some of the things that we'll cover, we can't cover all the questions, but the ones that I wanted us to to review this month were the ones that I typically saw in these conversations. Uh, So one of them that we'll we'll end the series with is uh, doubting God's character. Specifically, how does a good God allow pain and suffering? That's probably the most common question that I hear when it relates to doubt. Uh, We'll also consider doubt related to God's church. Can't tell you how many times people have said they are not following Jesus, not because they don't like Jesus, but because they don't like his church, or they don't like Christians, or the wounds that churches have caused. And So what do we do when our doubt in our faith is impacted by the behavior of followers in the church? Uh, We're also gonna look at doubt in ourselves. Right, so when we struggle with our own identity, our own understand, understanding of our self-worth, our value, our purpose, our meaning, that drastically influences our understanding of the world and the world around us. So how do I navigate any doubt that is related to myself? Those are the questions that we'll cover the next few weeks. Here's the one that we're gonna start with today. How do I know God is real? Like, Does God exist? That's really where it has to begin, right? It's is just even the whole concept of God as a whole, and how do I know that he's real? Um, and this is an important question that we're gonna really try to, to at least address and on, a, on, a, on an introductory level today, and probably not as in, deep, or as in depth as I would love to go, but we'll at least introduce it today. And so as we go through these questions, again, the goal is for us to learn not what to think, but how to think. And in, in so doing, my hope is that as we go throughout the course of this month, we will also be able to not just find freedom in asking these questions, but see the anchor that we have in Jesus, right? That we can hold fast to Christ as a sure and steady anchor that allows us to navigate these inevitable questions. So let's get to question number one, okay? We're actually gonna hold off on the scripture, Okay, it's going to be towards the end of the message today. Uh, I, I'm always committed to teaching the scripture, reading the scripture every time I'm up here on this platform, uh, but I'm going to delay that today because of the nature of this question. Right? Does God exist? And if we're going to think about that question, what I would say holistically and in, in, in a more uh, healthy approach, then we need to kind of start with more context. Because if somebody's wrestling with the question, does God exist, and I just throw John 3.16 at them and be like, there you go, there's your evidence, that's not really taking the question very seriously. Because if I'm questioning God's existence, then I'm gonna question the validity of the scripture. Does that make sense? So so I want us to actually unpack the question a little bit further first, and then we'll end with with a passage in the scripture that helps bring it to some clarity and some conclusion. Okay. So whenever you start to wrestle with this question of does God exist, typically the way that the conversation unfolds is people are going to point to what they would consider to be evidence, right? And there's a lot of different uh, aspects to evidence, and it depends on what position you're going to take in terms of what you would consider to be evidence, right? So if you're going to assert that there is no God, you're going to have probably a certain set of, of evidences. And if you're going to advocate that there is a God, you're going to probably draw from either the same or different ones, and so we have this list of evidence. Now, what's interesting is, is that whenever you really begin to ask this question about God's existence, you will see that a lot of the evidence has a common theme that takes you back to questions related to origins, right? Like, how did life begin? Why are we here? How did this all start? Which then inevitably also takes you to conversations about nature, creation. And, and so a lot of the themes uh, related to the evidence that people draw from speak to creation, origins, right, all those different things. So for example, whenever you have conversations about God, God's existence, you might hear people refer to uh, the theory of evolution, right? Uh, because that is one way to explain how we're here and the origin of everything, right? That, that Humans exist, humanity exists because of this, this idea of evolution and the survival of the fittest the natural selection, mutation, adaptation, right? That could be one aspect of the conversation. Others are gonna look at the the cosmological makeup of of the earth, I mean, excuse me, of the universe, and they're gonna find things that suggest, hey, this universe is expanding. And so how did it begin? Right? It's where you get like the Big Bang Theory that says because everything is expanding, it must at one point have begun as a singularity that had some form of a climatic event that started that expansion. Right? So you're gonna have conversations along those lines. You're gonna get into the world of philosophy, you're gonna hear people reference. Uh, things like the, the cosmological argument that was presented by Thomas Aquinas, right? Which Thomas Aquinas isn't necessarily going to draw from physics and science as much as he is philosophical philosophical observing uh, observations of the world around us. Essentially, that everything seems to move as a result of cause and effect, right? That that everything is in motion because something was had affected. That motion, And so if you look at this chain of events of cause and effect, then you can go all the way back to the beginning and find a first cause or a first mover. Right? It's a philosophical argument for the existence of God to a certain extent. The ontological argument by St. Anselm is the, the most difficult one for my mind to try to even grasp and articulate, but I'll do my best which the ontological argument essentially advocates that if you can conceive that there is a God that is great and perfect, if that doesn't exist, right? If he doesn't exist, then that means that concept is not great and perfect, right? Therefore, since you can conceive of it to, lack of, to, to have a lack of existence means that it actually isn't that great, isn't that perfect, therefore it must exist. That's the best way I can do, y'all. I mean, that's, that's my best attempt. But the ontological argument takes a philosophical approach. You'll have people talk about intelligent design. People will spend so much time and attention researching the way the universe has been created, all the different details that seem to fit so perfectly to make life exist and be possible. Right? It's the whole imagery of, of the watch that was made, and, and the watch is made with a particular purpose and function, and if a watch was made, there must be a watchmaker. So, so people will cite all these different uh, uh, examples from the universe and say, you know, if, if the electromagnetic force was just slightly lower or higher, then atomic bonds, not bombs, bonds would not be able to form, and life wouldn't be able to exist. Or they'll look into the depths and the intricacies of the genetic code within our DNA and all these different things and say, look at how complex and comprehensive this is. Clearly, there is a design behind it. So you'll have a lot of these sorts of discussions, and there's so much depth that you can go into that. And then you'll go into other arenas like experience. For some people, the evidence that they're going to demonstrate to argue for the existence of God is going to be their own personal experience. This one thing happened to me, and there's no explanation for it other than it was divine. Or this one thing happened to me, and there's no other explanation for it except that there couldn't be somebody that was divine. Right? You're going to draw from morality. People are going to talk through the idea of where does the idea of justice and love and hate and all these different things come from. Where, where does that? Where do we find the source of all this? This idea of a common good or, or benevolence or all these different things, right? There are all these different things that we categorize as evidence to make a conclusion about the existence of God. Here's the problem with it, okay? Now, this is part of, of Keller's premise in one of the first episodes that he, that he states, and I think this is the appropriate way for us to frame the conversation today. Here's the problem with it. Really brilliant people. People are far, far, far smarter than I am and, and than most of you, right? have looked extensively at this evidence, thoroughly, and many of them have come out with a conclusion, man, if you look at this evidence, there's no way you can believe in God. And, and yet, other people who are equally brilliant and incredibly smart have spent that same amount of attention, time, and thorough investigation and come with a completely different conclusion. And they've said, there's no way you can look at this evidence and not believe in a God. How is that possible? How can brilliant people come and look at the exact same evidence and come away with two radically different conclusions? How does that happen? Here's how it happens, okay? Here's here's how you have to frame and begin to learn how to think about the question, does God exist? The first thing that I would submit to us today is we've gotta recognize there is a difference between a proof and a belief, right? So like, here's the reality. I cannot prove to you that God exists. I can't do it. There are a lot of things I can prove to you. Like, like I can prove gravity to you. If we want to talk about gravity, I can say, look, I'm not a physicist. I don't know how it works, but here's gravity. I was really excited to do that today, by the way. I just was curious what it would look like. I'm glad the papers didn't go everywhere. But you see what I'm saying? Like, you can prove it. And, and the reality is, is that doubts are not associated with that which is proven. You, when you hang your Christmas lights on your roof, you don't walk to the edge and then begin to doubt gravity's existence. I wonder if it'll happen today, right? Like, you know it. Doubts and questions are not associated with that which is proven. So, so when I say I can't prove God exists, I also need to say you can't prove God. He doesn't exist. You can't prove either side. Both are beliefs. Right? When I say God exists, that's a statement of faith. When I say God doesn't exist, that's a statement of faith. No matter how you answer that question, it is not a proof, it's a belief. And so how do you arrive at that belief? Right. Well, that's where you begin to see different conclusions is because people cannot prove definitively to the other, so they are drawing conclusions. They're arriving at a belief, a statement of faith based on what they've seen. And the reason that you have different conclusions and the reason this is often a very difficult conversation is because of biases. Right. So again, thinking about how do I think, Right. what influences my ability to answer this question, well, the reality is, is that for most difficult que- uh, questions and conversations, very few of us approach them very objectively, right? Like, we tend to bring a bias into every question. What's the greatest team in college football? I had a bias that was absolutely destroyed yesterday, right? We always, we always bring in a certain bias to these questions, And so what will happen is that when we start talking about the existence of God, people are going to look at this evidence, and they're going to assume that their position is purely objective. They're going to say, how can you look at this? If you look at this objectively, there's no way you can believe in God. If you do, that's simply because you have a biased need to, to have some sort of comfort in life, or because you were born in Abilene, Texas, or whatever it is, right? At the same time, people will also say, how can you look at this evidence? And not believe that there is a God. If you don't, then you must have a bias. That you're just angry at God because of some wound in your life. You haven't really thought about it objectively. When the reality is is that neither side has the moral high ground over the other. They are both functioning from a position of faith and belief. So the question becomes, how do I decide what to believe in? How am I gonna make, how, how do I decide to believe in anything? How does reason and faith work together? This is what, what Keller takes a really thoughtful exploration into. Okay, let me give you an analogy that can hopefully help us with this conversation this morning. Um, here's the way that I look at it. Um, you, you ever played musical chairs? Can I get an amen? All right, we've, we've done musical chairs before. When, when you go uh, through the game of musical chairs and that music is playing Uh, You're engaged if you're going to win. You're engaged, you're strategizing, right? Like you're evaluating which chair to go to. You're figuring out how far away is the person in front of you, the person behind you. Where do you need to be when that music stops so that you can find a chair when the music stops? Well, imagine a game of musical chairs where it's not just you evaluating the people around you and when the music stops, but you're actually looking at the different chairs. And you can see that some chairs look really comfortable, and, and, and easy to sit into, some look very painful, some look like they might break, some look really sturdy. And you're gonna look at all these different chairs, you're gonna figure out, okay, which one do I wanna sit in that I know is gonna hold me when the music stops? Right? Life is like musical chairs. When you try to evaluate belief systems, what you're trying to figure out is, what's gonna hold me when the music stops? Like, like, what's gonna help me navigate this life? How I'm gonna evaluate all these different things? Because when I start looking at different sets of beliefs, some of them are gonna look painful, some of them are gonna look really comfortable and convenient, some of them are gonna look really, really fragile, and some are gonna look sturdy. And so I need to, to have a thoughtful analysis of these different belief systems so that I can choose to sit in the right chair, the one that I think is actually gonna hold me when the music stops. And so the way that I do that is to first acknowledge I typically don't come to these questions without bias. I need to figure out what my biases are. I need to pinpoint them, and I need to do my best to remove them and think critically about all these different options, all these different belief systems that will help me decide, is this chair sturdy? Can Can I rest in it? If I find myself in this river of doubt, will this be my anchor? Can it hold me? Right, that, that's the question that you have to ask. And, and so in order to do that well, um, Keller gives four really, really good questions that help us know how to think. Okay, here are a couple of things that, that he offers. The first question that you need to ask yourself when you're evaluating these different belief systems is, uh, can this belief system, can I be consistent with it, or does it contradict itself? So let's go back to this question, is there a God? If I were to say no, and that was going to be the set of beliefs that I embrace, can I consistently live out under that belief system, or will it inevitably uh, contradict itself? So, So, for example, if there is no God, and now somehow within that umbrella of a belief system, I have to figure out, well, then how did we get here? What are the origins to life? Then I'm going to probably draw from something like survival of the fittest, natural selection, evolution, things like that. Right, which, by the way, I'm not against those things. I'm just working through that as an example. Right, and so I, I might look at those things, but if, if that's my conclusion, if that's my answer, that there is no God, and, and it's just survival of the fittest, well, then the inevitable conclusion of that and working out of that belief system is that I don't really need to care for the weak. Like, that's what that belief system would teach me. And so can I live that out consistently? Or does the set of beliefs that I have, built together under this concept that there is no God begin to contradict itself, which leads to the second question, right? When all of a sudden I might have this view, well, there is no God, and so therefore I can treat the weak however I want to, there's gonna be something that bristles within us that says, ah, you probably can't do that. That doesn't feel consistent. And so the second question that Keller presents is, do you have to borrow beliefs from other belief systems because of these contradictions? which is what a lot of people will do, right? So we'll say, well, there is no God, and the natural conclusion as a result of a lot of the belief systems underneath that is I don't need to care about the weak. I know I shouldn't do that. I know I need to care about human rights, and so I'm gonna borrow from another belief system that actually tells me humans are equal and valuable and should be cared for. And so now I'm gonna bring that in, which shows me that my belief system is kinda being pieced together from different sources, right, that there are these, Things that make it difficult to live out consistently, right? Because if you have a God that says, all people are created in my image, and they all have inherent value and inherent worth, that's pretty consistent, and that, that makes it something where you don't have to borrow to say, oh, well, yeah, then we need to figure out a way to care for the weak. It's already there. But if I'm over here, and I'm subscribing to a belief system that says, really, it's survival of the fittest, it's, it's uh, natural selection, all these things, well, well, I can't really live that out, so I need to borrow from another one. Which leads then to the third question, which is, is the belief system that you're choosing to submit to and have faith in, is it consistent with your experiences, Right? Is it true to what you feel in a lot of ways? Not, not to prey upon emotion, but can you think critically about life's experiences and does your belief system offer meaningful explanations to it? So for here, uh, an example would be the concept of love. Right? So if there is no God, what is love? Like where does it come from? Why do we, what do we, what do we have love for? And maybe the answer in that, Component would be, well, uh, love is a chemical reaction, physiological reaction internally that kind of releases hormones so there's an attraction with another individual so that it will lead to procreation and the species can continue to survive. Right? And that could be an answer for love. But is that what you really experience? Like, how many of you sit down with your spouse and say, you know, the only reason we're married is because some chemical reaction went off within me and we were attracted and we needed to procreate. Like is that what you really feel is love? Or is there something deeper, more visceral that says no, I love you? Right, and, and so does your belief system create a consistency with your experiences? C- compare that that says there is no God and the way that you try to understand love and experiences like it versus there is a God and he is Love. And love is the source of so much of creation and relationship in the human existence, right? So that's that third question. Is it consistent with my experiences? The fourth question that he offers up that, again, helps us how to think with these questions is can I embrace the conclusions that this belief system offers me? And so I'll just try to land the plane on that one. Like if there is no God, what is the conclusion that that belief system offers you? Right, like you can find meaning in this life, you can find meaning from family, from politics, from government, from all these different things, but you live long enough, what you'll discover is all those things ultimately leave you feeling pretty empty, right? That they're all prone to corruption, to heartache, to abuse, to all these different things. And so at some point, you see that even those things fail you. And so if there's nothing else, then why does any of it matter? Like, that's the inevitable conclusion. If there is no God, then none of it matters. Now, you can do whatever you want. You can come up with whatever morality, whatever lifestyle. You can do whatever you want. So can you embrace that sort of conclusion versus a conclusion that says there is a God and all of it matters? (laughs) And there's a reason behind it all. These are the questions that I think are really, really helpful when you begin to wrestle with these questions that help us really recognize, okay, this is a statement of belief, this is a statement of faith, either way, so, so can I really set my biases aside and think critically about what my belief system is offering? How does it shape meaning? How does it shape purpose? How does it give me a sense of identity? How does it help me handle suffering? Is this a chair that I can sit in when the music stops? Is it gonna help me navigate this river of doubts? Can it be the anchor that I need to hold on to? That's that's the way that we wrestle with how to think. Okay, so with that being said, let me turn for a moment then, just briefly, to Psalm 8 that helps us see, just just for a brief moment, the beauty of the existence of God according to the scriptures. All right, so Psalm 8, we've we've sung about it. Uh, You heard it referenced On several occasions, let me just quickly read it to you and then offer a final final thought. It says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. So Psalm 8, just just quickly, is, is this beautiful depiction of the psalmist standing in awe of creation. Right, which we've done a good job singing about and even just seeing some of the, the pictures through children's message today. And, and it complements Romans 1 that tells us God's divine nature, his eternal qualities have been put on display so that mankind is without excuse, right? So that he's revealed himself in creation. And so you can stand in awe of the moon and the stars and all of creation and you can begin to draw some form of a conclusion that. There is a God, there is a creator, his signature is on this work of art that we call earth or that we call life. But what Psalm 8 doesn't fully do is explain our place in it. Right? Like like you can be in awe of God, but you can also be pretty overwhelmed when you really start to consider the moon and the stars and the work of his hands. How insignificant does that make me feel? How small. How fleeting, how momentary, right? And and so what happens when we encounter that sort of reflection and we see the idea that there is a God who has created all things? What does the God of the Bible help me see in terms of my place in the midst of him being a creator, in the midst of his existence? And the part of Psalm 8 that I love the most is that it tells us, what is man that you are mindful of him? What what is the son of man that you care for him? And what we see in the God of the Bible is that he is a God that remembers, is mindful, and cares for his people. Now, I don't know about you and what sort of belief system you want to put your faith into to help you navigate the streams of doubt. But knowing that God, in all of his glory and all of his greatness, sees you and cares for you is a remarkable thing to believe in. And I wanna tell you just how that impacted me personally. The the most recent doubt that I really wrestled with, uh, and I shared a little bit about, I think when I was in the midst of it, was after my dad passed away from COVID, just about a year and a half ago. And without question, one of the most difficult moments of that journey for me was sitting in a room with my stepmother and my sister and myself trying to decide what to do with my father's remains. I don't know that there's been a moment in my life that has felt more cold and empty. And I'll be honest, and I shared with this, the church before, As I went through that, I asked myself in a way that I never had before, do I really believe this? Like, do I really believe my dad's gonna be raised from the dead? Now that question, (laughs) that question was not one that stayed with me for weeks, not months, not years, A couple of days for sure. And I had to wrestle with that, what do I do with it? What is gonna be my anchor in moments like that? What chair am I gonna sit in? Now I can choose a set of beliefs that tells me there is no God and none of it matters. But how much greater, how much more sturdy, how much more secure and strong and meaningful to Embrace a faith that tells you not only does it matter, but he sees you, he cares for you, he has not forgotten you. He is mindful of you to the point that he has actually taken on flesh and dwelt among you and conquered death so that in that moment you can have hope. So let me ask you, church. What do you want to believe? What do we want to put our trust in? Where do we want to find strength to navigate those sorts of questions in life because the questions are inevitable? My hope is that as we go throughout this series, we're gonna find that chair that is sturdy, that allows us to sit in it, knowing that when the music stops, we have a reason to sing and to celebrate and to be joyful because we have a God who loves us and is mindful of us. We have a savior who is a sure and steady anchor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. God, we thank you so much for the questions. <laughs> we we thank you that even in the waves of uncertainty, we can come before you God and we can wrestle and we can ask and we can grieve and we can be challenged but help us, God, that when we encounter those moments that we would swim towards you. God, that we would reach out to that which we want to believe, that we would not run away from you, but that we would allow the questions that emerge in our lives to be opportunities that lead us into worship, that lead us into a deeper love and appreciation for you and for this gospel. God, we thank you that in all those moments and in those daunting questions, we have something that we can hold fast to. And so, for anyone that is in this room today that wrestles with those sorts of questions, teach them how to think. Help us identify our biases to set them aside so that we can once again see you clearly and once again evaluate God, where is it that we want to put our trust? Speak to us in a very meaningful and powerful way that you might receive the glory that you fu- fully deserve because of the trust and faith that we want to place in you. We thank you, Father, for walking us through even the midst of doubt. And so we commit it all to you today, Father, that you would be praised. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.